Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, heritage and people of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today on a breezy, fairly chilly morning in Mardale Head Car Park with author, illustrator and our host for the walk, Mark Richards. Good morning, Mark. Hello, David. Great to be here again. We are here in the back and beyond, Mark. <laughs> well, somewhat. Judged by the car park, it isn't completely back beyond. There's a few connoisseurs who know where the great places are, and uh, Mardell's one of those, definitely. We're right at the head of Hallswater, the Manchester Corporation water supply. I'm looking straight up to Mardell Ill Bell, just with a rim of snow on the horizon. It's a fantastic valley. It obviously has its own controversial past uh, a community has been lost here but it's still a, a grand arena and with this lovely morning light just creeping slowly down the valley sides it's somewhere I don't come to enough Mark and the reason for that is from anywhere in the county except the far east it's quite hard to get to it's a very inaccessible valley yeah that's one of the blessings of some corners of Cumbria, not everybody can get here or even think about getting here. And it makes it all the more special. It's rather like a Scottish glen here. You're really in the wilds. In times gone by, this was a, a community here, wasn't it? Before the reservoir was uh, created, there was a community here. And, of course, the name Mardale means the Meardale Valley with a lake. So there will always be a water supply here. And there are quarry tarns that we'll be going to have a look at later. It is a lake landscape, but it is a wild lake landscape. What is our route today, Mark, and who is our guest? Well, the route today is really being orchestrated by our guest, Phil Tinning, who uh, is an outdoor educator. He trains people in mountain navigation, and he's really going to show us something of that quality today. One thing we're doing today is something we've not done before, Mark. We're leaving the security and safety of the paths and we're going off piste should we let him in a little while talk us through the route yeah i think that's one of our early conversations when we meet up and start traipsing up from the car park let's make steps start the day too wet. No, you wouldn't. Uh, anyway, Phil, it's great to meet you again in the sort of environment that is natural to you. You're a North Cumbrian. That's right, yeah. I'm born and bred. Born yeah. and bred. And you've lived always in North Cumbria. Oh, most of my life, yeah. I started off in Longtown, just uh, quite close to the Scottish border, and then moved to Carlisle. Lived away a little bit when I was at university. When I was little, uh, my father was from farming stock and my uh, grandparents had a grocery store. I also loved being outdoors. As a boy, you'd do a bit of fishing and, and, and playing around. And when I went to the grammar school, there was a religious or divinities teacher, as it was called in those days, uh, called Johnny Eagles. And he ran something which probably wouldn't be allowed these days. He ran what was called the Hike and Get Wet Club, <laughs> which sounded like an absolute liability. 
Yeah. But he, he took us to, I think our, my first hill with him was Cat Bells. Right. And then as I progressed through school, some of my friends had been introduced to rock climbing and I, and I took to that, you know, just that adventure and, and getting away from it all. Haven't looked back, really. You haven't looked back. Well, today we'll be looking forward and learning a great deal about how you approach the outdoors and introduce others to that process. Strictly, we're focusing on not just following trails. What sort of route are you choosing for us today, Phil? Uh, what I've, I've looked at today is a route that we would probably use for training mountain leaders. It's simple enough most of the time to follow a path, but when you get off path, you need to start to feel what the, the land is doing and perhaps be able to make connections into areas that are less well-trodden. So we're gonna go up the path to small water uh, when we get there, we're going to contour around. That means keeping a fairly level uh, height into the next corrie. And I've looked at the map. There's an area where the contours are better spaced. So that means the ground there will be fairly level. So we'll be able to get around. And I'll look for weaknesses on the map in the contours in order to make journeys from one side of the hill to another. We can find weaknesses in the landscape. If you go back thousands of years, that's what people would have done. They'd have taken a fairly easy line. There wouldn't have necessarily been paths. But as those lines become more and more used, they become paths. Uh, and that's how a lot of our routes in the countryside have developed. Mm -hmm. The line of desire is the modern terminology, but that's how these routes arrive. Anyway, we're going to have a little look further up this path. We're heading on the Nan Beald Pass, which heads over into Kentmere. But we'll make a first start now. Okay. The sunlight has burst upon us and uh, I'm looking back over some drumlins, back down onto the, what's still shaded, upper quarter of uh, the lake at Horsewater. The fell sides are all beaming in sunlight, a bit of shadow ahead of us, looking towards Mardale Ill Bell, and uh, you can see the snow-rimmed cornices of High Street itself, where we're heading shortly across that slope. Now, this whole process, Phil, of how you react to this landscape, whatever the wild mountain landscape you're in, brings in this process of tutoring people and how not to get lost. I think the terminology lost is, it's a bit of a scary one, but it has a level of permanence, doesn't it? And I think few people uh, have probably been properly lost. Misplaced is probably a better word for it, or gone down the wrong way. And that indicates a recognition that you know, they're not where they wanted to be. So I, I tried to teach people to relate where they are now with where they have been, how long ago it was that they were somewhere that they definitely knew. And also look at the terrain. The scenery is, is a real help here. We can hear in the background, we've got rivers running. Rivers have got a, an incredible ability to flow downhill all the time. So once we start connecting pieces of the scenery with what we can see on a map, mm -hmm. it starts to give us clues about where we might be. And we gradually narrow that down to the point at which we can say with certainty we're definitely at a point. So a river over there, uh, we know it's flowing downhill. If we had a compass with us, we could check which direction it's going. I can see just behind us here, there's a, there's a couple of walls. They're on the one to 25,000 maps. Now they have a specific orientation as well. So we've got some good linear features, three types of features in the landscape, linear, 
uh, area features such as horse water there or a large area of woodland and spot features which might be for instance a specific cairn or uh, a, even a junction of some walls. Mm -hmm. So with those features we look at them on the map and start to decide which ones we can definitely prove are next to us and mm -hmm. then we can start to say where we might be. And of course landscapes in brilliant sunshine become very confined when it's foggy. Yeah, that, that is worrying. One of the first things I do with my basic courses is take people out in the dark. Once they feel they can handle night, which is a scary thing, yeah. being out in the cloud, which is normally during the daylight, is a lot more comfortable for It's them. a doddle. <laughs> uh, I give yeah. them a system that they can use to help keep themselves in control because mm. letting your brain run away with the fear is the worst thing you can do. Absolutely. Uh, Calmness is, is something you train people in, in a yeah, sense. Just give the sequence. We use a, a system called 4Ds. It's not uncommon in teaching navigation uh, and that involves knowing which direction you might have come or, or might want to go. It might be knowing how far distance you are from a place from the car park, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, you can also look at the description that you can obtain from a map. Now, we're in a low down on the fells, we're near a river, we're near some walls, we're at the bottom of a craggy ridge. So we're starting to describe things. And when we look on the map, if we understand the picture that we're seeing, if you think of a map as a picture, we can put two and two together. And finally, the other D, which is a little more complicated, is duration. It's how long. How long has it been since we left the car park? You know, if it's 10 minutes walking at a certain speed, it can't be more than a certain distance. So we've narrowed ourselves down significantly. Quite. You've learned all these skills uh from an early age, in a sense, but it's, it's still been a learning curve for you. I presume there must have been some point where you've actually been a little bit, uh, let's say, lost. <laughs> I've certainly had quite a few occasions you've come down, perhaps having a nice chat and not thinking and just following a path. All, all paths lead somewhere. Um, I've found myself going around in circles in the mist on occasion. I've done know. that. I was up on the Pennine Ridge on Melmanby Fell. I came to the Roman Road, the Maiden Way, and I was sort of captivated by it. And, and then I strode off merrily heading north. <laughs> Actually, I went south. I did get it wrong, but I went around a complete circle and I found myself standing on the Roman Road again. Yeah. I thought, how did I do that? You can get overconfident and feel you know exactly what you're doing and you can make the completely opposite decision. Well, I've come up through a hand gate, which is quite tall and it's got fencing protecting the valley head from the wildfell, which I think is to stop deer jumping over. And I've come upon a couple who are out exploring and uh, great to see you. Who am I speaking with? Better speak to me, Mark. Yep, okay, who, who are you? My name's Mark. Oh, all well, right, a double Mark. And you're not alone, you've got your partner with you? Yeah, Annette. Hi. <laughs> Hello, Annette. What's drawn you up here today? Uh, I've been here a few times over the last few years, just found it by chance. It's well hidden, and I kind of like that. It's not very populated or touristy, not a lot of people know about it, so it feels very secluded, and it's just stunningly beautiful. 
Uh, I normally come up every April and it's covered with snow, which mm. just makes it even more spectacular, really. Yeah. Anyway, Annette, this is the new thing for you, is it? I would go walking a lot. I just can't do the high ones because um, I'm not great with heights. Nope. I can get up there. I just struggle coming back down. But you're out here today. It's a day without the crowds mm. and you certainly get that in Mardale. Yeah. And so where are you hoping to get as far today? Until she tells me she can't go any further. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good measure. And um, where will you retreat to? Uh, well, we're actually coming away for the weekend. We're going up to Keswick, but I just wanted to, as we're heading up this way, show Annette Hall's Water Reservoir and just, just the drive through it is just beautiful. So we'll be heading up to Keswick and probably hopefully do some walks around there, around Derwent Water. Well, I really hope you have a fabulous time. You, you've picked the weather perfectly. Yeah. And where do you come from? Blackpool. So not too far. Not too far, right. You come from the Files. Yeah, yeah. There's just lots to explore here. I mean, I've only really probably touched the surface of it around here, but yeah, definitely love to spend more time exploring and seeing it all. Is it what's called the old corpse road to Sharp, which goes over yeah. that shoulder over there? That's a lovely little wander mm. to do. Are we to Swindale and mm. Smetsleddle and all that? Anyway, there's plenty to do and, and it's great to see you and uh, have a wonderful holiday. All right, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. Big pleasure. Coming up uh, towards the lip of the quarry, we haven't quite made it, but we can hear the tumbling back, small water back. And I'm looking back and I can see the sunlit upper reaches of the lake Hall's water. And beyond that in the distance, Crossfell, the highest point on the Pennines is clearly in view. And, and around me, there's a little bit of tree growth. United Utilities have been going through a process of planting up juniper and other native plants in a bid to purify the waters, stabilize the slopes, uh, and also re-green, make more natural what will have always been a far more wooded a landscape than it is today. Uh, lower down, you can see scrub down towards the lake, uh, just very broken. But here, we are uh, very much on open fell side. Bits of heather clinging to the edge of the gill. And of course, we're on the Nanbield Pass track which is an, an age-old packhorse route, the natural weakness in the north-south relationship in Lake District between Mardale and the Lowther Valley. Nan Beald is Anne's Beald. Beald is a shelter and the, the there is a wall in the past, uh, a, a moment for people to take their breath on a really bleak day. People needed that. And of course, up by Smallwater, there are some little shelters as well. Will have been great refugees going back four, five hundred years. Long before there was tourism and the sense of freedom of the fells, it was all about survival. Well, we've come off, immediately off the path, Phil, uh, by some boulders that you've identified. You were telling me that a boulder is a stone over two inches. Two inches in diameter, yeah. Well, these are certainly more than that. These are tremendous glacial boulders. They're, there's three absolute monsters. We've got a, a lovely setting here, and there's a small tarn, which you can identify on your map there, just in the foreground, and a little rocky headland, and you're looking at a generous view down the valley with a great blue sky above us. And uh, you've, you've chosen this as a, a navigational switch from being on the regular path. Yeah, we're gonna go uh, off the beaten track now, literally. Uh, looking at the map, I know that I can get round to Blee Water by uh, identifying contours that are well-spaced, which means fairly easy angle. Uh, ground doesn't look too wet until we get round the corner, 
I'm going to contour around the edge of a little quarry mm -hmm. to uh, cross another stream underneath blue water. Should be fascinating. We come really off pieces. It's almost like a primeval experience because we suddenly, for the first time probably on country stride, completely forgotten about the common ways. And we've come on what looks like a deer path and we're coming into the upper quarry here, the boggy marsh below us with a sinuous stream coming out of blue water. We can't just see that, but we've got crags above us with scree. And it's suddenly a, a completely different kind of experience. There's a different feel to this kind of thing. What would you describe it as? away from the, the madding crowd, really. I mean, you, you have the facility in a place like this just to be on your own. That would promote some level of self-reliance. Mm -hmm. You need a level of confidence to start coming into places like this. Mm -hmm. But I can assure you, it's, it's quite satisfying from yes. a mental point of view. Yeah. I think you said earlier, off mic, it's adventure walking. It's a sense of getting fulfilment from grasping the place for yourself as if you're the first person to tread that path i i agree i mean uh i mean perhaps we'll find out shortly that you know, we're not the very first people but it feels like it i often wonder you know when i'm walking around the fells if i'm the very first person ever to have stepped across a piece of ground uh i'm sure 99% of it is, has been covered, but there's always a chance. You've done uh, climbing in the past. You've actually pioneered routes, haven't you? I've done some first ascents, yeah. yeah. So Not very many, but I've done You've one done a few. Yeah. You come from the Ray McAfee generation, don't you? Yeah, started climbing in the uh, uh, late 60s. Borodale was my home almost for weekends, really, mm. rock climbing. And that was a time when there was a surge of grades going up and... Uh, people being active in climbing yeah who's your climbing partner at the, in your most extreme end of your climbing days quite a lot from Carlisle mountaineering club and that was the home of some of the country's very best climbers at the time jeff lamb pete bottrell alan Gregg. they're all climbing at the highest highest possible standard i did climb with jeff occasionally and pete and alan mm -hmm. um because it was a fraternity, it was almost, there was no score involved in going out with the hard men. It was just what you did. Mm. Um, I wouldn't be climbing at their standard, but I would certainly be, you know, giving them uh, my money's worth. Well, well, we'll wander on a bit further, Phil. Great yeah. stuff. Squelch along. Interesting, Phil, we've uh, just come over that brow and uh, suddenly there was a bit of a drop there and a, well, a, a rock step and you approached in a particular way, which is from your experience. How will you explain what you did? Uh, right, well, the first thing I was doing was, was understanding who my clients were mm -hmm. and what I thought their capabilities were. I might, have, I might have tested them out earlier on a little bit of an easy scramble somewhere. Uh, and I need to make sure that people are confident with moving that because losing that confidence is where panic sets in. So uh, I give people the choice of, of taking that route or an easier alternative and uh, you professed an ability and a, and a confidence in doing that, so that mm -hmm. was good. Um, and I was there watching and making sure that you uh, weren't distracted, mm -hmm. that you were putting your feet in the right place and it was only a matter of 
three or four metres, really, wasn't mm, it? It was, and three yeah. points of contact. Keeping your weight on your feet is very important, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, your, your legs are much stronger than your feet, so mm. you can support your body weight much more easily. And you, you stood underneath it, but you wouldn't try to catch anybody, would I you? I definitely wouldn't try to catch them. <laughs> <laughs> no. I, was, I was as close as I could to offer advice and assistance. That's yeah. the key thing, advice and assistance. Come into the shadow of uh, Piet Crag and... I'm looking down now at the very meandering course of the beck and, and it's sort of, it's the beck itself is calming down, you might say, going through the marsh there. This is the first moment on the whole walk where we haven't had any wind. It's been very prevalent early on, most of the walk so far. And I can see on the other side of the, this little shallow quarry, a track, a, a really old track. Now, this is not your common tourist way up to the top of the fell kind of track. And I noticed you were just looking at the map just then, you spotted that there was a quarry site up to our left. But that's an industrial track of 200 years, 300 years age. Yeah, I don't know what the, the quarrying purpose would be. It could have been for for building walls or whatever, but there's certainly evidence on the on the side of Piat Crag there of, of quarrying. And actually a little bit higher up, I do know that on Piat Crag there's some old remains of shelters and buildings. So it's it's obviously had some extensive use at, at some stage, probably, as you say, a couple of hundred years ago. And interesting, the names. We've got various crag names, that, of which Piat's one, which just refers to magpie. And on rough crags, there's a heron crag and an eagle crag. We'll come to those in a minute. Uh, you can see the skyline of uh, High Street, which has just got the cornices of snow, which remind us that winter's still got at least another month ahead of us, which is a lovely thought. Just not very many years ago, at the end of March, I was skiing off the top of Scorfell Pike into Wasdale. Certainly can come with a vengeance and uh, late snows are... Uh, are not unknown around here. Is it a balmy day? It's a lovely day to be out. I mean, it's, oh, we're in the shelter of the breeze here and, it, yes. and it's, you, know, you could certainly sit down and have a cup of tea or a coffee, which might be a nice idea shortly. My eyes are drawn to the ground here because there's ruts, little footprint ruts. And this is red deer country, famous for it. And uh, I wonder, is that something to do with the rutting? And perhaps that's where the term rutting derives, the fact that they leave little rut marks. I think it's possible, just before we traversed around the, the ridge previously, we followed a deer track on quite wet ground. And I reckon it was two or three deer. And they've made sizable marks. But this is interesting because the ground beneath us is quite dry. It's tussocky turf. But what attracted my attention was the, the depth of the holes. And looking at them, I do think I can see traces of the hoof prints. And the sort of holes that would have been created by deer in rut, you know, actually landing quite heavily on their hooves. So that, yeah. that would be my guess, yeah. yeah. I think you're right there. And any listeners who have a, a more in-depth knowledge about the activities of red deer... Uh, might be able to respond to this, but interesting to see it on the ground and sense that this is exactly the sort of place where mating would have gone on and uh, it's quiet. People like us don't come here very often and uh, it's just a, a really wonderfully wild place. Well, we made it up to the dam, Phil. It's uh, quite a substantial concrete dam. I'm not quite certain whether it's functioning as a reserve for horse water when it gets really low, or that was its original purpose. 
and whether it still functions in that way now. But in terms of being a corrie, a natural corrie tarn, it really is dramatic, isn't it, Phil? You're looking up towards the crags on High Street. You've got a bit of history of climbing up there, haven't you? Yeah, I've done, I mean, this is well known uh, in the lakes for its winter climbing. Being quite a bit way east in the lakes, it tends to preserve colder weather for longer mm-hmm. um, rather than being influenced by being near the coast. Siberian here. Yeah. So there's, there's a number of major lines. There's a major gully in the middle there that we're looking at, which is called Burkitt's Gully, which is quite a, a decent ice climb. And then further left, there's two large water courses, which again freeze up really well in winter. So all of those are very popular. Yeah, you can appreciate that. Because at the moment, it just looks like almost like summer, which is bizarre. But, you know, it, we, are, we are 15th of February, still plenty of winter left, and that can all ice up inside a week and it can be quite a ferocious alpine outlook. It would take a good week to freeze up. These gullies, particularly Burkett's, fill with snow a lot. Because of the plateau that is uh, part of High Street, the wind blows off and then builds up and falls into the gully. So yeah, you do get quite a lot of snow. When it gets bedded in and freezes, it's fantastic. I mean, it's just an overpowering amphitheatre. I think a lot of people will be used to Red Tarn below Helvellyn which in itself is quite dramatic, but I think this beats it, really, oh, it, in terms it, of its precipitousness. If you want to see a real quarry outside of Scotland, this is the classic example. We're, uh, how far up above the tarn now, would you say? Uh, we're about 100 metres above 100 the metres, yeah, yeah. we're saying tarn, but it's a water, isn't it? Yeah. Blue water, the blue lake. Anyway, we're looking back towards Heart of Fell and Brandstree, Street, which is a lovely name, the steep road, it means, and you can just see a cairn on the top. It's one of the survey cairns. They, yeah. Manchester Water Corporation put up survey cairns, didn't they? I'm fascinated by glaciation, and you can see the crags over there. At, to, to the right of the crags, there seems to be a sort of a planar slope in, at an angle. And it's my deduction that that's the top of the glacier at the last major phase of glaciation. What would your reading of that be? I think that's quite likely, although it's, it's a fair while ago and I can't remember that far back. <laughs> for 18,000 years is a bit too well, far for you. 10,000 years ago for the last major glaciation. Right. Uh, and obviously what's happened since then is a lot of the landscape has been overwritten by fluvial erosion and further periglacial erosion. So it, it does wipe out a lot of evidence from from major glaciations. But I think you're right, what we can see there is a line on the fell that could easily have been the top of a, or the edge of a glacier. I think what you see here is the bare bones of the landscape after major glaciation. And then it's been covered up with areas of, of landfill, if you mm, like, right. which were caused by water coming off glaciation or fluvial erosion itself. So that tends to soften a lot of the look of the, the landscape is not as stark as you might find in some of the higher alpine areas. Yeah, well, one associates glaciation in the alpine settings with jagged peaks, and here we've got these rounded tops, but strictly the craggy slopes betray something of that aggressively worn, eroded landscape that the glaciers would be sculpting. And 
blue water itself, the blue water, as I say, is, it looks pretty dark now with the shadow on it. But uh, my understanding was this is where there would have been the last actual physical body of ice sitting there. Since the last major glaciation, huge areas would, would covered in ice. This corrie here would have been full of moving ice, which right. would denote a corrie glacier, yep. uh, and perhaps going over the lip where the dam is now and then melting further down the valley. Mm -hmm. So it would have been independent of any major valley glaciation. It would have been topped up regularly during the, the winter months. Mm. And as long as it continued to move, it would have been eroding underneath itself. To me, there's a strong geological control being going on here so that the rock formation, its orient orientation and type has been such that it's allowed the glacier to dig its way through and uh, and carry all the, the debris down the hill. Mm, and you've got all that moraine lower down and that sort of secondary lower corrie where the, it was spilling into would have been far more dispersed with ice. I imagine that this would have been a moving glacier later on, uh, maybe 5,000 years ago. Then the glacier itself would have been almost hanging uh, down in the bottom there, which is a much more level terrain. Uh, that's where I would have expected to see just ice fields or even uh, a glacially dammed tarn of some kind. And then early man would have come and started moving his herds up here and so on. And you, to go back six or 7,000 years, as that ice was falling away completely, man was moving in here and creating what we see today strictly a pastoral landscape. Three or 4,000 years ago, there would have been climate change then, which would have meant that higher up in the fells, would have been a more palatable climate, warmer and uh, uh, more equable than we get today. Right, um, yeah. So that they could well have farmed in those areas and been able to avoid the mire that could have been and the forest that could have been the, the major valleys where we live today. Yes. Fundamentally, all the place names here are Viking. The slope down here is called Duddawick, I notice on the map. Mm -hmm. uh, a wick is a farm, it seems like, or it could be a bay. Uh, but the... The evidence is that uh, the earlier place names suggest a link with the native settlers, not the Vikings, that form the basis of what you're saying there. I was under Croft Head uh, last week, and there's a Romano-British settlement site there. There will have been something around here, but we haven't got any obvious evidence, apart from the hill fort. That's true, yeah, there's a little hill fort on Walter Crag. Uh, that could have been a point of retreat for any sort of transient or local settlement, and they may not have, have used much stone in their buildings. No, no. Timber was fundamental. And so we see today a landscape almost bereft of trees, apart from the ones they're trying to put back in. Uh, but once upon a time, timber was what all the buildings were made out of. It was only sort of the 16th century onwards who started using stone big time and all these field walls. Anyway, we'll plod on. Up Caspel Gate, here we come. Right. Well, I've come, we've come up onto... The Rough Crag Ridge above Caspel Gate, enigmatic name Caspel, I couldn't for the life of me tell you what it means, uh, but we're above this deep trough of Riggindale, which is due immediately over the brow, over the precipice to the north of us, and the sun is shining all the way up the slope of Kidster Pike, the steep goat path where the coast-to-coast -coast treks and you can see the ridge beyond. It's the southern slope of Rampskill Head with Tootpenny Crag and uh, Short Style. And there's a crag below it, which Phil mentioned a moment ago. It looks like uh, a bloodhound. <laughs> it's in the shadow now, you can't really see it. 
And the sun is still on the Longstar Ridge, which is the continuation of this rough crags ridge, up onto High Street with its uh, corners of snow. And looking back, we just see the top of Rough Crags near, in the near ground. And I'm looking down Horsewater towards the Pennines. And I can see the Horsewater Hotel, which I think we will retire to at the end of the walk. The wind has picked up. Now we're on the exposed ridge. There's hardly a, a lee point to find, but makes the experience of being up here all the more thrilling. We're coming over the ridge now. We've come over the top of rough crags and below us uh, invisibly are a line of crags overlooking Riggingdale. There's Heron Crag which refers to a sea eagle, Urn Crag. And there's an eagle crag as well yeah. which refers to the golden eagle and as you may very well know Eddie the eagle was here up until about five years ago waiting, a male lonely, waiting for a female to arrive from Galloway and she never turned up. Poor fella. I did get a photograph of him. This is uh, understandably a place where birds of prey, uh, raptors of many sorts, will have found sanctuary. Rather like the red deer, it's a quiet area. Now, I've certainly not seen one in this neck of the woods for probably 10 years or more. Right. Uh, I last saw one actually um, just above the road at Dunmail, which oh, is quite yes. interesting. Um, but over here, it was actually, the eagle itself was, you know, quite a source of tourism, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, I mean, people would come out on a weekend and either sit on Kidsty Pike or walk up the valley here. Up Riggendale. Up yeah. RSPB had a viewing spot. Yeah, so it was, it was quite popular. As to whether they will come back or not, I mean, uh, the lakes themselves are getting more and more popular. There are many more people coming even than 10 years ago. Um, and I'm not sure there's the uh, food source for them. Yes. at the moment yes. uh, there's, there are not that many rabbits around no uh, the deer population is controlled there aren't even a lot of sheep really no nope. not that I would advocate if I was advising eagles to eat sheep but no nope. uh, yeah it's sad in a way it is I notice on High Crag on the Highstale Range and we'll be there on Tuesday doing our next podcast there's a, a shelf called Sheep Bone Rake yes. and I gather that refers to an eagle carrying a sheep bone carcass up um, to pick it out. Well, yeah, I mean, they are known for being carrion eaters. I mean, it's not unusual. Yeah. Um, I just think there's, there's maybe not that much opportunity uh, these Nowadays. days for them. Yeah. Well, there's a light aircraft flying over. Don't feel you can pick it up on the microphone. Yeah. And whoever's flying is getting the same pleasure that we're getting, soaking in a magnificent setting on a gorgeous day. Well, reflecting back from Caspel Gate, we look at uh, High Street, and uh, that's on maps you'll see, certainly older maps, its alternative name was Racecourse Hill. And that was because shepherds had meats there, like they did at various other places, like Walner Scar. And uh, the shepherds from either side of the valleys, from over in Patterdale and this here in Mardale, and they used to roll a barrel up from the old Dun Bull pub here at Mardale Head, long since submerged and lost under the reservoir. Anyway, they used to have events up there and they used to have fell pony races. That's why it was called Racecourse Hill. So it was a significant meeting place for shepherds to separate out their hefted sheep and take them back down either side of the ridge for tupping. 
And going further back in history from the shepherd's meat, 1900 years, that sort of period, the Romans created a route adopting what would have been a native ridgeway. They were only really able to pin down the fact that it was a Roman road when the Kentmere Horseshoe was being upgraded, the modern recreational ridge walk. Excavation was done on the ridge on the Scott Gate path coming up on towards Rampskill Head, and they found a substrate inverted road that proved that there was a Roman-type road there. But it will always be even in Roman times and not the main route. It would be a horse route, a cavalry route. People will travel along the ridge, avoiding the, the forests uh, in historic times. Come off the rig, come up to the conifers that edge the front end of the rig. It's, it's been a magical ridge to be on, actually, on a day like today. I'm looking at blinding sun. This is a special place, and you, Phil, have devoted much of your life to exploring adventurous places in Europe and elsewhere. But like famous climbers like Chris Bonington and so on, it was come back and this is special to you. It's indescribable really, this feel, isn't there? You feel like part of the, the landscape in that you know it quite intimately. Mm -hmm. We only scratch the surface in terms of history and the geology and mm. flora and fauna, but it's somewhere which I described earlier as my office. I just love being in the outdoors and Cumbria, Cumbrian born and bred, although from a little bit further north, it's just a feel. And it doesn't matter whether we're coming off the hill on a lovely warm February evening, which is quite an unusual thing in itself. Absolutely. Um, or it's the middle of summer. Um, I, you know, you're just glad to be able to be here. Absolutely. Be able to be physically part of Part it. of this place. Mm -hmm. Done pretty much all of the Lakeland Hills. Mm. And I don't know, it's just any day that's a good day is, you know, is the right place to be, isn't it? You're not a list ticker, though. Oh, sort of, yes. You know, I keep finding lists and people keep writing them. Um, <laughs> me? <laughs> yes, Don't remember me are. again. <laughs> yeah. uh, although, to, to be honest with you, Mark, I, I'm not a great guidebook follower. I just like to be able to go up and tick another hill and tick another hill. And what I find it does, and I, you know, when I completed the Munros, I, I didn't call myself having done the Munros. I think it was just another hill on the journey, really. Mm, um, and I like the way it gets you into places that you wouldn't normally go. I'm following up on some odd burkets and <laughs> marlins that are, I didn't really realise existed and, uh, yes. and they're putting you into places and keeping you active in, uh, in the fells. Well, get back down towards the car now. Excellent. Well, we've coming to the end of the walk, Phil. Car park within eyeshot. It's been a fabulous day, hasn't it? Still oh. in one piece. That's why I brought you along. I knew I'd be safe. <laughs> there's still the breeze, there's still the sunshine, still the blue sky. But actually, I've got to the quick fire moment. I, I give you one or two ideas and I want you to give me a quick response. So, which is your favourite pub? Oh, Kirkstall. What's the best view? Uh, top of Dale Head looking down Newlands. Favourite fell? Difficult. Uh, can't answer that to be honest it's too difficult so which is your favorite walk if you were just having one walk 
on a glorious summer's day, where would you go? I would go along the, the Helvellyn Ridge down to the Dodds. Sensible. Yeah. Along the spine of the ridge, the highest ridge in the Lake District. Yes. Right. On skis, of course. In midsummer, absolutely <laughs> fabulous. <laughs> okay, Wainwright or Wordsworth? Or Wordsworth. Grasmere gingerbread or Kendall mint cake? Oh, the gingerbread, without a doubt. Tent or comfortable hotel? Or tent. Uh, have you got a favourite lake? Buttermere. Gosh. Not a lake, though, it's a mere. Herdwick or Red Squirrel? Ah, uh, Herdwick. They smile all the time. Have you noticed that? I saw a rough fell sheep yesterday and it seemed very aloof. Oh, right. Uh, Favourite Cumbrian town or village? Oh, I'd have to go back to my roots. Longtown. Right on the border. And what is your earliest lake's memory? That would be... Cat Bells with the Grammar School Hike and Get Wet Club. Well, how fabulous is that? Well, it's been great to have your company, Phil. It's been really nice to be here. It's yeah. been great. A lovely day for it. Absolutely. And the light's changing again. It's just fabulous. a great time to take the boots off and, and contemplate. We're going to retire to the Horsewater Hotel for a cup of tea. Are you going to join us? I'm in for a cup of tea. Cheers. You're welcome. journeys and mark and we have driven back along the valley and we are enjoying a cup of tea in the Horsewater hotel now this is a very exciting moment for me because i've driven past this many many times i've never stopped here and i've always thought i really want to go there and actually stay for a few days because it feels really cut off doesn't it it does and it's 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 a lovely uh, art deco inside but but outside built in 1937 as it says over the bar as it says over <laughs> the bar and as they've very kindly told us and they've turned down the music for us and they've served a fine tea well it's well known as a, a great place to come to coast to coast walkers of course walk on the far shore they do yes but um anybody who likes to see red squirrel come here right and they have a little feeder there and they're just not there at the moment. No, not out to play today. I have been here quite a few times. Right, and um, yeah. my wife loves coming to look at the squirrels. <laughs> Anybody who's listening who wants to come and have uh, a fine cup of tea or a beer or a lovely evening meal, Horsewater Hotel. That, that's that's quite an advert. Are we getting paid for this? I, no, but the no, tea oh, was very good. It was and I have been tea. before and I can endorse it. You are endorsing it. Well, we're actually in Cumbria, not endorse it. <laughs> But it's not always been quite as nice. So I've got a nice little quote here, Mark, from Lynn Linton's classic book, The Lakes County. So this is 1864, before the valley was flooded. And she writes, It is all very primitive and rough. The church is picturesque enough, but it is by no means a rustic cathedral. And the Royal Hotel, and the only one, is a wretched public house where you can get eggs and bacon and nothing else except the company of a tipsy parson lying in bed with his gin bottle at one side. Well, it's all his juniper around the banks is... Well, I suppose it, is. <laughs> it might have had something to do with it. But um, a first for me coming here, which I'm delighted about, but also that first of leaving 
the established paths today on countryside, which we haven't done before. And I have to say, uh, generally speaking, when I'm walking, I, I like the comfort of the, the path. I know where I'm going. But it was, it was very refreshing, wasn't it? The moment we got off the path today, it kind of it was a sense of freedom. It turned out to be a fascinating walk, and with weather like this and conditions like this, you couldn't fail. You couldn't, enjoy fa- it. you couldn't fail, and Phil was um, full value. It was a fascinating expedition. It's, it's a switch from what we were planning this week, but we will be doing the same thing that we were planning on Tuesday in the fog. We're going to do it in the clear weather next Tuesday, taking David Powell Thompson up on a high style. Uh, above Buttermere, which was Phil's favourite lake. Yes. It was also... Mere. Mere. Mm. Absolute most Buttermere. Roy Henderson admitted that last time out. Uh, that yes, from it's his guilty secret. Mm. Buttermere has that, and we'll be right amongst fabulous mountains. So We will, yes. So that's something to look forward to. That's something to look forward to on the next Country Stride. And for now, we're saying goodbye from the Horswater Hotel, which I've been to for the first time, and it's great. And... Um, <laughs> See you then. See you then.